when you see uh, government getting involved to block or uh, sort of uh, dampen the the um, the possibility of expanded historical lenses, that tells you a lot. And it tells you how much is riding on this, right? The education system is the first indoctrination tool of any society because it starts at kindergarten. So now you're shaping and molding the mind as you see fit for the society you want to create. And if you start introducing these things that alter or break the cognitive dissonance that's required for a system like the one that we have to remain, well, now you're talking about global economies that are, that are at risk, right? I mean, it, it gets it gets deep, man. Like, this stuff goes deeper than just white people and black people. This goes into, you know, world governments, world economies. Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple, humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Today we have DEI truth teller John Graham Jr. on the show. I met John just a few months ago, but from our very first meeting, we clicked. His views on Black America are rooted in historical facts and lived experience, which I'm excited to have him share with you here today. His new book, Plantation Theory, The Black Professional Struggle Between Freedom and Security, has been getting rave reviews. He's also Vice President of Employer Brand, Diversity and Culture at Shaker Recruitment Marketing, based out of sunny Los Angeles, California. John, welcome to the show, my man. Hey, hey, Vic. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Good, brother. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Yeah. Listen, first and foremost, how, how how's the weather out there? Because you know, I'm in Toronto. It's 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 cloudy. How is it out there? It's horrible. I mean, sunshine every day, like <laughs> between 88 and 92 degrees. It's. I, I don't encourage people to enjoy this. At yeah, all. no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> that vitamin D. Listen, That's we like terrible. to we like to go right to the hard questions, my man. And and the first one is yeah. is is one that's kind of been sort of sitting with me because it's not my experience, but it is your lived experiences. How would you describe growing up as a black man in America? Hmm. Yeah, that is not an easy question. <laughs> um, and one that would probably take multiple episodes to, to really expand on. But I'll simply say, um, you know, because being black is not a universal experience, right? It's not every black person's experience is different. Um, so it's not a, we are not a monolith, which is the, the, the statement that sums that up. What I will say is that I grew up in predominantly suburban neighborhoods um, based on my parents' um, you know, successes uh, in corporate spaces and in entrepreneurial ventures. The challenge with that, right, while it's not the, um, the, the, movie, the movie script version of being black and male in America, it comes with its own challenges when you're in proximity to dominant culture uh, and you are obviously the, the visible minority daily. So I tell people like, you know, I was one of maybe six black students in a school of 800 in high school. 
Um, you know, I remember getting asked why I brush my hair, you know, or can I touch it? It feels like Brillo or, you know, um, you know, something I talk about in the book, you know, arguing with, uh, you know, a recent uh, college grad, a white girl who couldn't understand why I would have chosen to go to a historically black college uh, when she she couldn't accept that I was black. She just wouldn't believe it. <laughs> and so so it's it's a varied experience when, you know, when you're light skinned and black. And so you're not necessarily dark enough to be, you know, immediately threatening by vis by visibility right but then also not light enough uh to be or not white enough to be automatically accepted so you know my my experiences were, were, were vast and varied um but you know i certainly um experienced otherness uh, on quite a, a common common basis you know, it, you bring bring up an interesting point that I've always sort of uh, wondered about, and I've I've witnessed is that not black enough. You know, because <laughs> even though you know you are black, you identify as black. You know, people who are darker skin might say, "Well, you have it better than us." Oh, colorism! Oh, colorism! Color. Yes. So that's what it's called, eh? <clears throat> colorism. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's the the dirty uh parts of the underbelly of of american chattel slavery are the products of the slave master's desires right and so you know i always say there's no pure black person in america right nobody is without some intermingling within the family line the question is how dominant the gene is how you know uh progressive it became over over generations so it's um yeah i mean there was literally tests uh and requirements or criteria to determine whether or not you were white right and they would uh, the u.s was was it's you know the u.s's instance of slavery or chattel slavery is called the peculiar institution and not just because it was vastly different than anything the world had ever seen in terms of chattel slavery but also to the extent that they went to uh, to classify uh, those who were other than white. I mean, they went down to like one sixty fourth, you know, one thirty second uh, of you know black blood in your in, in your in your in your uh, your gene pool, uh, right? And they didn't have like twenty three and me to prove it at that point. It was like it was just you, you're too dark, right? <laughs> uh, but but these are the things that then create a whole class within an underclass. And so the closer you are to, to proximity and visibility to whiteness, there were different treatments. There were different advantages or disadvantages, depending on which, um, you know, which uh, environment you're in or trying to traverse. Very interesting. And, and, and you know, like mm -hmm. I said, it's something I've always wondered and, that's yeah. something about you. You break things down in a way that people can easily digest and understand. And part of that is rooted in some of the um, history you spoke about mm -hmm. with your parents and sort of the pedigree that you come from. You want to maybe mm -hmm. dig into a little bit about sort of where that is and what that pedigree was like and what it was like to go to that very black institutional college. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. I mean, like, both sides of my family uh, have, you know, a long line of educators. Um, in fact, my grandmother on my father's side and, and my grandmother on my mother's side went to the same teacher college, teacher's college, uh, Cheney University, 
um, and who knew, you know, that they would later become <laughs> in-laws. But, um, but yeah, it's like, um, you know, from, from, from the education side to the entrepreneurial side, uh, my, my father's father, uh, grandfather on, uh, on his mother's side, uh, owned like 150 properties in Philadelphia at one point. Right. And so in a time where he couldn't actually be the one, it's the face of ownership, right. He had white patronage to sort of get these deals and so forth. But, and then on my mother's side coming from, um, you know, a, a long line of uh, lawyers and um, you know, law enforcement. And, uh, you know, her father, my mother's father was the first black police officer in a, in a town called Westchester in Pennsylvania. And so like, there's all this rich history. Now there's also the fact that my uh, great grandmother, my father's grandmother uh, and her husband um, moved from Georgia and uh, during the great migration uh, to move to Pennsylvania um, outside of Philadelphia. And so the history that they were leaving behind or the reality that they were trying to get away from uh, is also part of my history. So, you know, um, the stories I'm, I'm still learning, right. And sort of trying to put the pieces together in, in my ancestral past. But, um, you know, I, I draw on those experiences and those stories that I've, that I was fortunate to hear firsthand from, you know, my grandparents and my great grandmother, uh, when she was still living. So, uh, my choice to go to an HBCU after being in predominantly uh, white schools um, was a no-brainer. It was the only school I applied to when I went to Lincoln University. My mother and father met there. I had aunts, uncles, and cousins who graduated from there, great aunts and uncles who graduated from there. <clears throat> and it being the oldest degree-granting historically Black college university in the country, there was a sense of pride just in that itself, right? And so getting to a point where you you look around and you are the majority, right? There's this unspoken and often reinforced um, requirement of excellence and uh, and and a freedom to fail without it reflecting negatively upon your entire race. Like that's it's a it's an experience of of healing and validation and um, you know instillment of pride that that I think. Um, you know, most who don't go to an HBCU couldn't couldn't uh, couldn't understand. However, um, there's also this notion that going to a historically black college or university doesn't give you the advantages of going to a historically white institution because you're not in proximity to dominant culture. You don't learn their uh, language, the 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 ways in which they communicate, their value systems, the you know all of these hidden realities that you will need once you step into a corporate environment. So it's, um, it's, there's always discussion or debate around that. Uh, but I very much value my time at Lincoln. That's amazing. I, and you know, it sounds yeah. that, uh, like you said, there's tremendous pride in being able to represent that institution and, and, and yes, how, indeed. How has that shaped your way of thinking? Because, you know, once again, we talk about diversity of thought, right? How has that shaped your way of thinking and viewing the world? Oh, man. So I went into college as a computer science major. I knew that I was going to be doing 3D graphics and animation 
Uh, some some Pixar or whatever, and this is '98. Okay. Um, I was deep in it, and my first semester, freshman year, we had a mandatory class called the African American Experience. It was then for the first time that I had learned that Africans were traveling to the Americas thousands of years prior to the Europeans discovering anything, discovering. Um, and that there were trade routes set up, there were exchanges of culture, there were you know, rooted communities of Africans who had decided to settle and stay. And I'm, my mind is blown. I'm getting exposed to African contributions to civilizations hundreds of thousands of years prior to what we know as the start of African you know, history, which is with the transatlantic slave trade, if you're taught in American schools. And so it was at that point, I think like that Thanksgiving break, I went home and I told my parents, I'm changing my major to African studies. And they laughed at me uh, lovingly. And they said, that that's not going to make you any money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I joke now and I'm like, it looks like I played the long game, huh? You know, <laughs> worked out. <laughs> but, but to answer your question, I've carried that sense of exposure and, um, and, you know, sort of inclusion of a history perspective that most don't get into the work that I've done in corporate spaces, which has helped me as, you know, to, as I found my passion and my purpose, uh, which was, you know, connecting these dots between history and modern day reality in a way that we can now have dialogue that's devoid of p political agendas and, you know, uh, personal, uh, you know, um, um, you know, uh, feelings and emotion and let's deal in fact, right? And then we can talk about your feelings around that, but it's if we're not even on the same page historically, if we're not speaking from the same page of you know common language, the conversation is going to be really hard. So I try and um, you know leverage all of those uh, you know exposure uh, opportunities that I can uh, into the work that I do today. That's amazing, and I think that you know and, talking about the long game. You're absolutely right because there's very few people that I've spoken to on this subject in America that are as intelligent as you. So, you know, you definitely um, you. you pull a lot of that. And I'm just being honest with you, right? And I'm not saying I'm an, a subject matter expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I listen to what people have to say. Do they make sense? Are we talking emotionally fit fueled? Uh, conversation are we talking about things that you know are are rooted in fact and then like you said discussing from there the nuances of the approach on how you're going to look at you know sort of people's lived experience and generational trauma and things that we talk mm. about uh internally right so i think that's really awesome you know there's something that um happened recently and i just kind of you know based on what you were saying about how you felt thanksgiving talking to your parents we just had the 4th of july and uh, you posted something on LinkedIn around, you know, instead of wishing me a 4th of July and you sort of expanded on the history. Do you mind sharing that with myself? Because I only know it mm. as what it is sensationalized or, or in the media, if you will. I'm not sure, sure about the lived experience of black people in America. So can you share that with me? Mm. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this is an evolving conversation, right? Um two years ago, Juneteenth wasn't a conversation for most people, white or black. 
but now sorry now what we're talking about is this um i want to say it feels like a mass awakening or just a mass moment of honesty where you know the words of history are coming into modern day reality as reminders i simply stated that you know look to the words of Frederick Douglass, who gave an address on the 4th of July in 1852, right? So this is pre-emancipation um, uh, you know, um, proclamation. This is pre-Civil War. So he, at great risk to an all-white audience, basically said, this ain't my Independence Day. Like, <laughs> we got people who were enslaved on the outside of this, this hall where I'm talking to you. And yet you're asking me to give you a speech on the meanings of freedom in celebration of independence, like it, the ultimate contradiction. And to be courageous enough to have that honest dialogue, which was his brand, completely on brand. But I don't think people realize how like detrimental <laughs> making a statement like that at that time, right? Like now you might get blasted or canceled on Twitter for saying some stuff like that. But far worse could have happened to Frederick Douglass. So I, you know, it comes down to this notion of, are we celebrating things out of ritual rather than consciously thinking about what we're being asked to celebrate? If we're talking about celebrating the country's independence from Britain. Okay. Well, we also have to look at what racial framework we're viewing that celebration through because the only people who got independent in that war we're white people. That That is what it is. And then they went on to found a country for white people and set up a whole bunch of rules and systems that would support and benefit and advantage white people. So what we're seeing now is this mass recognition, I think, that you know our history isn't necessarily <laughs> as inclusive as everybody would like to read you know, rewrite it to be. And they're choosing to determine what activities they're going to participate in. Can we just call it a day off? You guys celebrate the fourth cool. Like there's people who weren't really feeling Juneteenth, but they gladly took the day off. Cool. But let's have that honest dialogue. And I think now there's there's starting to be a challenge to the status quo, you know, early, you know, education indoctrinated norms that we've all grown up with and have just participated and followed because it was reinforced through every facet of society. So now it's all being challenged. Thank you, man. Like that's just very eye opening. And, and, you know, for our guests and listeners who, who don't know what Juneteenth is, do, do you want to maybe mm. share what that is? Cause yeah. that's not something like you said, two years ago, people had never heard that term. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Juneteenth uh, is celebrating the uh, June 19th, 1865, um, declaration of freedom to the the, the slaves, uh, the enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, who uh, hadn't heard the news that two years prior, almost three years prior, uh, Abraham Lincoln had signed an, emancipa an emancipation proclamation, essentially setting uh, enslaved people free. However, what some people will say, most people will say, because the headlines read so, is that it marks the end of slavery, which is historically inaccurate. There were still states who were very proudly uh, disobeying an emancipation proclamation and participating in slavery well into post-1866, um, but with the advent of the 13th Amendment, which legally made slavery um, 
illegal in the United States. So, um, you know, it's it's a recognition, I think, to um, uh, to freed people uh, in Galveston, Texas, but uh, all who were formerly enslaved or uh, descendants of formerly enslaved people, um, you know, have an opportunity to connect with their history in a very different way than what's historically has been, uh, you know, proactively shared or even authorized to be shared on a mass scale. I mean, to see it enacted as a national holiday uh, showcases, I think, um, you know, an advancement in the dialogue. I don't necessarily know that it's progress, right? Um, but it, it is an advancement for sure in, uh, in conversation. That's amazing. And, you know, you've always had a pragmatic approach to sort of what's happening in the world. And it's something I've always appreciated because, you know, um, let's be honest, we we know there's some challenges. We know some things need to be fixed. And, uh, That's right. you know, you're doing your part. And part of that is this new book, which I'm excited yeah. to talk about. I mean, I've been seeing it all over social media. Um, the other day I saw a Harvard university professor sort of like say, this is amazing, this framework. And she had a bunch of notes and I'm like, I know that guy. (laughs) Right. So, you know, tell me, tell me about why, why did you decide to write this book? What is it all about? So plantation theory, which is the, the eye catching scroll stopping headline, um, is actually secondary to the reason why I wrote the book, which is the subtext uh, subtitle, which is the Black professional struggle between freedom and security. Which um, you know, plantation theory is a club I run on plus, uh, Clubhouse as well. Which you know, you've got a, a strong voice in there. Um, but that struggle, bet- you know, between freedom and security, and and that's what really drove this conversation. Where. I saw firsthand, not only personally, but colleagues that I worked with, um, my parents, my parents are actually a great example of this, where their, their successes, their excellence, the passion that they brought to the work, the, uh, the rigor and expertise that they brought into these corporations um, didn't fully present them with the opportunities or the outcomes that you know, their white counterparts saw for doing far less. And so when you know this, when you know that there's so much more you could be doing beyond your job description and you're, and all you're asking for is the opportunity to, to craft, to shape, to build something within the auspices of a corporation. But that ability is curtailed by how your manager feels about you or whether or not they want to lose their top performer because now they, who are they going to rely on to look good? Or um, they just don't believe that you should be elevated, right? Whatever the whims are of that manager determine your uh, ascension capabilities, right? Versus what if all of that passion, perspective, expertise, um, sauce were thrown into your own endeavor? Well, now that begs the question, okay, are you prepared for what freedom actually means and the full autonomy and control of one's destiny? And the responsibility that comes with that, right? That lack of security for freedom. So, you know, it was this constant battle that I would have within corporations because I was always brought in as sort of the unicorn to come in and change, you know, change the face of employer brand or, you know, add an authentic uh, patina to a, to a company's, uh, you know, talent attraction strategies. 
But then the moment that that started to become bigger than what they thought it could be or what they knew it could be, and the spotlight, the visibility, the rapid change that comes along with that human-centered work becomes a threat, right? It becomes uh, outside of the status quo. You have to deal with bureaucracy and people want you to play that game. And to advance, the expectation is that you fall in line. But I'm like, wait, do you want change or do you want you know, a variation of the same, because there's a difference. And so you start to, you start to, to, to work through that. And so the book came about as a result of seeing so many stories that were so universally similar, in fact, almost verbatim, independent of each other, that I said, these voices need to be heard, these stories need to be told, and a platform needs to be provided to really examine the lived experiences of Black professionals in corporate spaces. I love that. I absolutely yeah. love that. And it's very <laughs> much why we started this show because we're centering on lived experience and, you know, sharing that um, commonality, if you will. Mm. Because, you know, I'm going to start something and I think you might be able to finish it. Work twice as hard. <laughs> For half the credit. Right. Yeah. And, and and I mean, it's it's funny because these are sort of universal um, ideologies, if you will, mm. within mm-hmm. um, immigrant communities, BIPOC communities, Black communities. Mm. Um, yeah. How have you felt in terms of the education? Because I feel like a lot of this centers on our own education. Like, how do you feel about mm. that conversation? Um, well, uh, you know, the the book was meant to educate. Um because I feel like there's a lot of gaps in where we're starting the conversation when it comes to DEI. What I mean by that is everybody wants to focus on what, right? And then move immediately to how, but nobody ever stops to talk about why. And I think why is where, where we have the most work to do because why has been hidden from most people intentionally for centuries, right? This entire construct is built on a the dominant um, class or caste, not knowing why they are the dominant caste, but just willingly, you know, unwittingly accepting their role and position and privilege and entitlement, and not questioning it. Because how do you explain water to a fish? At the end of the day, the water only knows uh, the fish only knows water because there's no contrast of land. So at this point, we need to start introducing some contrast. And I think that's what you're seeing. So educationally, you're seeing things like the 1619 Project and critical race theory being the headlines of, you know, local school boards vehemently rejecting this in their curriculums and for reasons as simple as they don't want their children to grow up thinking they're racist. Like this is the reason why they're denying their children access to a broader aperture of history because they don't want them to feel like they're racist. But even in that statement alone, <laughs> showcases the racism in, in, right, in, 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 the, in, the, in the reality there. Um, so I think there has, when you, when you see uh, government getting involved to block or uh, sort of uh, dampen the, the um, the possibility of expanded historical lenses, that tells you a lot. 
and it tells you how much is riding on this, right? The education system is the first indoctrination tool of any society because it starts at kindergarten. So now you're shaping and molding the mind as you see fit for the society you want to create. And if you start introducing these things that alter or break the cognitive dissonance that's required for a system like the one that we have to remain, well, now you're talking about global economies that are that are at risk, right? I mean, it, it gets it gets deep, man. Like this stuff goes deeper than just white people and black people. This goes into, you know, world governments, world economies. Power and privilege. Power and privilege. It, it doesn't usually uh, you know, relinquish itself uh, you know, easily. We've had many um you know, a conversation and, and, and that's, like I said, why there's a tremendous amount of respect for you because, you know, there's a greater understanding over what's happening, um, in, in today's world. Right. And I think that, uh, in a post George Floyd era, there has been so much conversation, but even the other day, someone mentioned that I feel like it's sort of losing its steam. Right. Yeah. um, Yeah, for sure. It's unfortunate. You know, let me ask you this question. What was one of the, or what are some of the biggest challenges you found living in the skin that you're in? When you operate at a high level, meaning you're, you're, you're always looking from, I'll speak for me. I'm always down the street and around the corner on things, right? Like I'm up ahead seeing what's coming and coming back and letting everybody know that is often, uh, one of my greatest gifts and one of my greatest curses because there's a lot of people who don't assign credit or value to what you're saying because of what you look like or because of what it threatens. The the issue becomes when you are aware of either reason and you can't do anything about it other than choose to be somewhere else. One of the One of the great quotes um, that I've come into knowledge of in the past few years is from a woman named um, Caroline Wonga, who who was formerly the chief diversity officer at Target uh, Target Companies. And she said, um, if who you are doesn't fit where you are, change where you are, not who you are. And it resonated so much because it spoke to this underlying principle and concept of authenticity. But at the end of the day, authenticity for Black folks in corporate spaces can be a liability. And so you have to really be keen on what fight you're willing or, or, um, or you deem worthy to fight in the first place. And is that the right place to have that, that fight? Is that the hill you want to die on, as they say? So living in this skin that I'm in, and I'm keeping this in the work context, because the societal uh, you know, aspects of being Black in America, you have very little control over, right? You can choose where you work. You can't choose when you get pulled over. <laughs> you can't choose when you're profiled in a store. You can't choose when right? all of the things that we know happen. But where you work, where you're supposed to express your deepest passions and talents and you know, to receive compensation that's, you know, uh, commensurate to your skill level and and capability, you have a choice there. And so I think the most difficult part about that is when you're very much aware 
of when the slights are happening, the dismissiveness, the dehumanization, and you have no recourse other than to find a new place to be or go create your own. Has that happened to you in corporate America? I wrote a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) How did that make you feel? I I think so, yeah. (laughs) And and how, Um, how did that make you feel? Yeah, I mean it's uh, <laughs> it's unnerving, man. Um, it's unnerving. It's like uh, it's like being in a room full of crazy people, and you feel like you're the only sane one. You know, it's like it's even worse. It's like you know that dream you've had where you feel like you're yelling at the top of your lungs and nobody can hear you, <laughs> or you're running, you're trying to run away from something, but as as hard as you run, you're like not moving at all. It's like that. It's 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 thinking i mean this is this is something that we uncovered in uh, one of our clubhouse rooms uh that ended up being a three-part series called the hidden language of corporate america like we are showing up to a to a game of uh baseball and prepared to play a game of checkers like they're not even in the same, in the same realm right like you you you're you're entering these spaces thinking that it's really about your 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 credentials or your schooling um, or your ability to communicate directly and clearly or um, to collaborate and bring people together. And I'm like, eh, if that were the case, then you'd see a lot more advancement of people who are the most credentialed in this country, who are collaborative by default based on African ethos, right? Together is the default versus individualized. Um, so it's like, at some point, you're like, well, wait a second, I'm doing everything that you're saying to do. The problem is there's a difference between what they're saying and what you're hearing. And so this is that cultural gap or cultural disconnect when you have uh, people living in two different racial realities trying to work in a, you know, towards one mission or one goal of a company. We aren't even addressing these things in, in DEI right now, right? At least the majority of DEI practitioners aren't even starting there. We're starting at unconscious bias and teaching, you know, the majority culture to be empathetic. Right. But we're not even talking about the un the unacknowledged or unknown ways in which we communicate that are diametrically opposed. And and one of the things that you, you brought up is really just sort of credentials and and feeling like you should be on the same level but because of whatever societal constructs or organizational constructs are in place Mm -hmm. you don't have that same opportunity for advancement and and possibly why that quote came from that colleague at target right where it's like you might have to just change the place you work and i know that you work at a wonderful firm right now who's really trying to change the narrative that's right. That's you right. Want to tell me a little bit about that. Oh man! Uh, so Shaker has been uh, Shaker Recruitment Marketing um, has been, I think, a, a, a model for what um, working relationships should be, right? And if we think about, um, imagine if your company supported your entrepreneurial endeavors that actually benefited the company. Like that construct is, it's, it's, it's not common, you know? So I've been fortunate in that um, 
Joe Shaker Jr., uh, president of the company, and I were friends, right? We had a, a great relationship. Um, I was a client for, for damn near eight years um, and built global employer brands with Shaker as a client. And so when I started to see a shift, maybe in like 2018, and the recognition that employer brand and DEI were these two shops that never really connected or worked together, but they but they were so integrally um, critical to each other that I said, you know, at some point, and then I'm seeing as an employer brand practitioner, I'm going to all the conferences, I'm speaking on all these circuits, and I'm seeing a majority white and female um, crowd and uh, speaker lineup. And yet we're here talking about presenting companies authentically and showcasing the culture. And I'm like, but but how are we doing that if we're not incorporating the principles or the strategies of DEI in how we recruit talent? How do we speak about the culture in its full sense, not just the champagne and roses? And how do we get past these tokenized career sites with only like an equal ratio of black, white, brown, yellow? Like, how do you... How do you really get to the crux of who your company is to help marginalize talent, make informed decisions on whether they wanted to join there? And Joe, Joe shared the vision. He saw it. He was like, you know what? I think you're right. A ton of clients are asking us to build diverse and inclusive employer brands. And he's saying, well, is your culture diverse and inclusive? And it's a simple question, right? But, but people don't think like maybe our marketing should match reality which I, as a practitioner, digital marketer, and brand builder, couldn't sleep at night knowing I'm building a brand that doesn't reflect the reality of what's experienced. So <clears throat> made that happen. I joined early 2021, and, um, and I'm pleased to announce that we just launched uh, our new DEI offerings uh, and lived experience-based approach to employer branding um, last week, uh, July 7th. So it is now available for the world, right? Uh, global uh, clients and companies that are intent on building diverse and inclusive employer brands to attract, uh, engage, and retain marginalized talent. So, congratulations, uh, I'm thrilled, man! Congratulations, man! And and Thank are you, you are you leading the charge on that? I am. Yes, yes. So my uh, I, I lead a team who does uh, uh, employee value proposition builds. Uh, we build employer brands, and then. Um, We've actually baked in um, a uh, what I, what's actually something I created called the lived experience survey, which produces a lived experience index score. Uh, we bake that right into the way that we build employee value propositions. So if, if you're thinking about how do you get a pulse on what your employee culture is, or your company culture is, as told through your employee lens and your leadership lens, but now we're adding a third dimension. And, and what is your culture uh, um like as experienced by marginalized talent. And so the question set is so robust, it goes beyond anything an engagement or a pulse survey does, which typically gives skewed views of a company culture because it's like three to five culture questions that are so light and surface that any majority voice will drown out the, the marginalized. This um, actually puts the marginalized experience in context to a majority experience. And now you have a number out of 100 that will determine where you fall on your lived experience. And you can use that as your benchmark now to see if in fact your DEI initiatives are really working, number one, 
But then number two, it'll help position your employer brand in a more authentic and culturally honest and appropriate manner to showcase not only what what you're doing or, or, or where you are as a company, your, your score might not be great, but now you can lean into that and showcase what you're doing to build on, to build upon that score and why it's important that you bring in, right. Uh, you know, the right talent to help the company move along in its, its goals. Um, we're excited about it, man. When you this sleep, is, uh, <laughs> sleep, <laughs> sir, sir, what is that? Oh um, my goodness. You know, you, I, I'm fortunate to have a great team, um, a great support. Uh, my wife uh, is is absolutely. Uh, I I really married up. <laughs> Let's just say that. Uh, but yeah, you, you still find the time because at the end of the day, man, like you can't. This this work can consume you. It can. Uh, you know, I was told by a very good friend of mine who's the chief diversity officer at a very large brand. Um, she told me like seven years ago or eight years ago when she got into this work, um, that DEI is, or when I was getting into this work, sorry, uh, DEI is one of the loneliest, um, thankless, disappointing, depressing jobs you'll ever do. But she said, but just for the, the opportunity to even make the smallest of progress, it makes it worth it. And it's true, especially when you're black and you have a a vested interest in the success of it, right? You know that you're not going to live to see the, the, the benefits or the fruits of the labor, as it were. But you're working for generations beyond you that this shouldn't be a problem, right? If, in fact, uh, we're, we're even slightly successful. I love that, man. And, you know, we've always connected on lived experience because it's been our lived experience walking through this world and the skin we're in. And we have children and we talk about sort of why this is important work and, and all of that. And you bring up a really great point that, uh, you know, I, I hear it from a lot of people. They're, they're, they're hurt. They feel burnt out. They are challenged um, when they go to work every day. And it's difficult. And even for us practitioners, if you will, or, or people who engage in this work on a day-to-day basis, it's not easy making change. So why did you get no. involved in this thing, man? Because, I mean, <laughs> let's be Sounds honest, like you know, you got, the, you, got, you, got, you got the eight-year-ago, don't do this. I didn't get that talk. So, I mean, tell me, why, why you are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great question. I question that every day. Now, um, it's it's one of those things where it's not something you actively choose, right? And it's it's cliche to say this 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 was my calling or this I didn't choose the work. The work chose me. No, it's, that would be too easy. But it, at some point, you recognize where your um, your worldview, your background, your training, your education, and family. Uh, uh, conversations, all of those things start to align to a point where you can see a gap and you can see a way forward that isn't or hasn't been done. And it's very rare you get those opportunities, right? It's it's almost like uh, inventing something um, that everybody's like, God, that's so simple. Like, I, I, why didn't I think of this? Or I had that same idea like 10 years ago. I'm glad to see it's finally here. 
Well, it's it's the opportunity to act on seeing that gap and then having everything aligned to be able to then, you know, uh, move forward on it. So for me, it was, I was completely fulfilled by doing employer brand, right? I could have been cool with just that. But when I realized that what I was doing was, was differentiated even amongst my peers, and that was going in to tell these personal human stories as a means of connecting uh, prospective talent to existing employees in a way that hadn't been done through like documentary style filmmaking. And so as you get to hear these stories and you're seeing like the people behind the work, but then, then something happens like, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, a Philando Castile gets murdered on Facebook live. And then you, then you come back to work and nobody's even talking about it. Um, or, you know, the countless names and incidents, uh, of police brutality or, um, you know, state, uh, uh murders. Um, and, and nobody's phased about these things except for the particular community who's targeted. And so you're like, okay, well, how can I now have people telling these stories, which, you know, you can hear their backgrounds, where they're from, what adversities they face, and then their professional story, but you're not really telling the whole story, right? And this notion of bring your whole self to work kept ringing in my head as, uh, you know, sort of this, this misnomer, right? This, uh, it sounds great, but the more and more you step back and look at it, you can tell which racial frame or which racial reality that statement is being made, right? Because bringing one's whole self to work really depends on if your whole self will be accepted. Mm. And so, so it, for me, it was like, I don't want to sell false narratives. I'd rather work with companies who are intent on um, leaning into their deficiencies in this space, especially, you know, post uh, George Floyd, where every company on the planet was making commitments, right? Grandiose commitments, throwing a ton of money at the scenario. And then like six months later, it was back to business as usual, or even sooner. Uh, six months is probably conservative, <laughs> uh, you know, but it's, um, so for me, the um, long-winded answer um, is, uh, I saw that I had the ability, um, I had the support, uh, and, um, you know, and took, took a risk, right? I left a corporate job to go be a consultant and go build something that hasn't been done. Um, and so you trade a little bit of security for freedom. Now where I've, you know, I've by no means, uh, solved <laughs> for that struggle, right? Between freedom and security. But I think I found a really good balance. And sometimes in life, that's what it's about, right? I mean, you don't necessarily get fully what you're after, but it's it's moving closer towards those goals and dreams and the things that you're trying to put together for you and your family, as well as for the community and engaging in meaningful work, which I think is really amazing. You know, there's something that I saw the other day and it just sort of... Um, I'd love to get your take on it, man. So if I'm going to say this, yeah. I want you to complete it with your thoughts. Dear white okay. people. Dear white people. Um, I would love for you to examine the sources of your insecurities. 
I would love for you to understand your history of insecurity and what that's meant for the world. I'd love for you to really dig in and hold a mirror up to your current insecurities and how they manifest. And I, you know, I'll, I'll stop it there. But, but the reason why I say that is because you and I have talked about this. I don't believe in white supremacy, but I do believe in white insecurity. And it, when you're a student of history, you understand that uh, insecurity was the, the driving force behind colonization, right? From the earliest doctrines in the 1400s, food insecurity, health insecurity, plagues, resource insecurity. Europe wasn't producing that much. Um, you know, uh, power insecurity, religious insecurity, you name it, created a foundation for all of these uh, activities of aggression and, and dominance. And so now as we fast forward to a modern day, how can I, before I even come to modern day, you think about what spawned out of those insecurities was uh, the embrace of Chinese technology and gunpowder and creating new weapons to make killing more efficient at a distance. So now you can dominate faster without losing as many, you know, soldiers, right? And, and that technology, which was superior to anything at the time, um, you know, Sven Linquist, who wrote the book, um, uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, suggested that it was this embrace of superior technology that falsely made those using it think themselves superior. And so when you think about that, and now this domination based on, you know, arming boats and ships and attacking from sea to land and becomes the, the foundation of aggression expressed through insecurity. Now you build constructs to protect all that. Now you've got a military industrial complex that's unmatched in the world to protect the insecurities. You've got corporations and CEO C-suites, executives who won't allow certain people to rise up to the ranks because it might expose their insecurities. And so uh, insecurity triggers fragility, which leads to rage. That is the formula. And this is what I want white people to examine. So you know you're going to get my show shut down before we even get started, right? <laughs> Your these are, questions. These are private conversations we've had, my friend. <laughs> hey, man. Shoot. Listen, you know what? Book. No, listen. And and that's why we're here. We're here to yeah. uh, open in the dialogue and share conversation on just that lived experience, right? So I appreciate your honesty and, and sharing uh, so forthcomingly. You know, how, how do you think, John, that, you know, we can move closer to a society – you know, or or move to a society where we. Um, I'm losing my thoughts. It's just so good. How do you think, <laughs> as a society, we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? Hmm. I don't think belonging is the right word. Okay. And it's no knock to you. I think nope. it's uh, it's a word that has become increasingly buzzy and trendworthy. But belonging in itself has a different connotation when you speak to a black person some point we belonged to other people belonging is, a, is an ideal of acceptability right of acceptance and that always has a power dynamic who chooses whether one thing is acceptable or not i think at some point we need to be okay with each other's existence and humanity first and foremost we need to be able to uh on both sides 
no, not on both sides. No, no statement after that. Never mind. Um, we need to first acknowledge the lack of empathy and the ongoing trailing effects of what 450, 500 years of not viewing a particular group as human has done, right? What are the modern day realities of somebody who, you know, goes into a store and sees a long line and jumps right in line and says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you standing there. That That's a lived experience. I'm six foot three, light skin and not, not, not quiet. You don't even see me standing there, right? So there's these, these seemingly innocuous or, you know, um, innocent omissions of humanity that go on daily. So as we think about what does the future look like, let's start with addressing the ability to be empathetic at a core level by acknowledging somebody else's humanity. And there's still a huge challenge there. I mean, if you really think about it, Vic, what is DEI as a practice other than to teach empathy and to see people as human that are other than the majority? I, I like it. I'm still, that's what I've reduced it down to. <laughs> I like you it. Know? Yeah. And listen, we, th- that's the thing is that we all have our th- own, you know, thought leadership around how we feel this thing should play out. And there is no mm. knock to me and there is no knock to you. Yeah. It is our opinions, our lived experiences and our knowledge that we really bring to the world. And I always appreciate your perspective because I do not live in America. I live in Canada. I am not black. I am brown. And to give you the floor, to give you the mic, and to listen empathetically to what you have to say is how we move closer, right? Yeah. And and I respect you. I respect your opinion and everything that you've done for the community, for DEI, and moving closer to people feeling respected because you deserve the respect, Listen to what you've said. You have Harvard University professors creating like mini syllabuses off of your book. And and, and that is the voice of John Graham Jr. Where can people find you, my friend? Uh, I'm everywhere, man. I've achieved (laughs) social media omnipotence. Uh, um, I'm on uh, my my main uh, social drug of choice is LinkedIn. um, So you can always find me. Uh, there, um, clubhouse for sure. Uh, the book available everywhere. Books are sold. If you want to support the author directly, plantationtheory.com is your direct way. Um, but yeah, man, I'm, I'm always looking to connect. I'm an, I'm a, uh, an inherent connector, uh, bridger between aspiration and opportunity. So I'm always here to, uh, to engage man. So and I'll sleep later at some point. Amazing. <laughs> I have a curveball for you, though. Shoot. A question. Random. Okay. All the right. Term, the term black and brown right, gets used a lot. You hear, you hear black and brown synonymously lumped together most times when people are talking about diversity. <clears throat> My question to you as a brown man, have you ever heard brown folks say brown and black? No. Okay. 
and I know you're an N of one, but this is a theory I'm, I'm, I'm rolling around in my head. And again, challenging our automatic behaviors and statements that we say, you know, uh, without really consciously thinking about it. And I, I've thought about that and it's, it's been growing as a, um, as something, I don't want to say a trigger, but something that gives me pause when I hear it, because I notice that black and brown are always put together, but brown and black, not so much. So I'm, I'm, I don't know what's there. I don't even know if there's a there there, but I figured I'd ask you because anybody you'd know. Well, listen, I mean, like you said, I'm just one. And, and, and that was sort of in my immediate recollection. I can't think of it, but I actually have some thoughts that I think we should probably sidebar on because once again, that's okay. how we get better. We get better right. by having these very real conversations, by coming up with our own ideologies and thought processes around the world. Because even for me, I've had instances where I'm not feel like I can bring myself into the black and brown conversation because mm. I'm not black enough, even though mm. I'm a person of color, right? And it's mm -hmm. a, and that's why I talk a lot about that respect and that mm. belonging because you know, once again, I'm not saying that I'm right or wrong. I'm saying that I know what it's like to not feel like you belong. Mm. And regardless no of the color of one's skin, their religion, their personal beliefs, their sexual orientation, um, I think that's all we really want, man, is to, to not feel like we're having that dream where we're screaming at the top of our lungs and no one hears us. Mm -hmm. Right? So, dude, I love... Yeah. I, today was just real, man. Today was real. And there, oh, are, there are none... In, in my opinion, and who I've come across, more realer than you because you keep it straight, you're open-minded, you engage in discourse, and it's always a conversation and good vibes, and I feel like I always walk away with something. So there you have it, Thank folks. You, the truth according to John Graham Jr. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show, I, my friend. Oh, the pleasure is mine, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Our show is sponsored by Discourse. We build belonging into the DNA of DEI. You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, Discourse Agency. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave a review, drop a comment, and most importantly, share it with a fellow human. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, your truth is your experience. Bye for now.